here today, not because I was uh, cheering for Tom Brady. Uh, Jeffrey, would you like to wear this hat? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, yeah, all right. So, I mean, we, we were talking early, as you call it, the, the brain injury sport. Yeah. Which that. is actually not at all funny, but it's unfortunately <laughs> true. And so insurance companies aren't even covering. Uh, anyway. Right. Just, um, hey, before we launch into our conversation, I want to take a second to thank some of our local sponsors. Uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. In uh, Sherman Hill, that's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Also, uh, thanks to uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic, uh, located in Nevada. Uh, Dr. Kim Holding has been treating large and small creatures for over 30 years. Give her a shout. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Uh, thanks also to Ritual Cafe on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines. Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and a great uh, an all-vegetarian menu. Thanks also to Bold Iowa Building Urban and Rural Alliances to Fight Climate Change. Uh, thanks also to uh, Catering by Sid. Owner Sid Cohn has been uh, doing that uh, line of work for a long time. Every one of her, uh, her catering arrangements is custom made. That's Catering by Sid, C-Y-D. And thanks also to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at great prices with excellent and very friendly service. That's Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. All right, welcome to the show. Again, Jeffrey Weiss here, refusing to wear the uh, Tom Brady uh, New England Patriots hat. And who can blame him, really? You know, Brady said the other day, what did he say? Um, America thinks we're going to lose. Someone corrected that. No, America doesn't think you're going to lose. America wants you to lose. <laughs> but at any no rate. No comment. Yeah, at any rate, uh, from a purely entertaining point of view, there were two amazing football games. But, you know, again, do, how much longer will we sustain an injury that uh, produces so much harm in so many people? Um, we'll yeah. Anyway, <laughs> onward to more important things. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with a, um, Mylon Engel about the uh, the confluence of climate change and agricultural uh, and, and animal agriculture. We'll also be talking about the uh, victory by two Boone County landowners who sued uh, Dapple and won. Uh, we'll be uh, talking about the um, the war in Yemen with uh, Jeffrey Weiss and also about uh, Martin Luther King's legacy of nonviolence. Let's kick it off with that, Jeffrey. Um, you've uh, you're, you're kind of my go-to guy when it comes to foreign policy. You have your your uh, your mind steeped in in lots of the uh, current conflicts and and you've got a, a good handle on some of the things that again don't often make the mainstream press. Mm -hmm. Uh, the war in Yemen only recently has kind of come to our mainstream attention, mm -hmm. and it's a it's an ugly situation. And our role in it, as often happens, is questionable. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, well, Yemen is, of course, as many people know, it's the world's most serious humanitarian crisis um, in terms of the devastation of the infrastructure in Yemen. Um, the famine, uh, the photographs of, of children who are emaciated have been put on the cover of the New York Times and many other um, publications. And so there is has been some discussion. There was a big breakthrough when the United States Senate, in a bipartisan bill, um, did vote to cut U.S. Um, military aid to Saudi Arabia specifically for uh, the war in Yemen. So the, um, the, the, the uh, Congress only cut the portion of U.S. military aid that went to Saudi Arabia for Yemen. Other yes. pots of money that go to Saudi Arabia continue to do so. Yes, of course, and inclu so, yeah. including the weapons sales. So, you know, so. But, okay, so Saudi Arabia really isn't, they're actually not spending any money on Yemen anymore. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> any U.S. Yeah, money. well, well, in, you know, in, but but just even to finish, um, now that the House of Representatives has uh, majority Democrats, we really call upon people to call Sydney Axney's office um, and to ask her to sign on to a companion bill in the House of Representatives, um, so that this bill can be sent to the president. So, we anticipate that the president will veto the bill. Um, as he has expressed support of Saudi Arabia, even in the aftermath of the open public well, this killing and torture lo- this of a president journalist, loves dic- dictators. He just loves dictators and authoritarians. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's, that's fair that's to his, say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair to say. Um, and it's it's um, you know, as one who studies our form of government, presidential republics, it's 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 not uncommon. It's it's what you you find in some countries in Africa that have our form of government, and also. Um, in South America, there's a dangerous tendency towards um, executive power. Um, the United States and Costa Rica have really been the only presidential republics out of about 90 historically that have resisted this this um, dysfunction. Um, and so we're so recently, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, in fact, I gave a talk recently yeah. in Ames. I hope to be giving one in Des Moines called um, "How Presidential Republics Fail and Why the United States May Be No Exception." Um, that's a mm-hmm. different issue today. Um, yeah. um, you know, I, so, Martin Luther King Jr. But, but let me yeah. back up. I, I want to yeah. make sure again. The mainstream press hasn't spent a lot of time covering Yemen, uh, and we, we talk about the war. We talk mm-hmm. about famine. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of what the source, what the root of the conflict there is? Boy, <laughs> um, well, maybe the word "brief" was. Uh, yeah, was well, I mean, I mean, there. to make to make a long story short, um, when, when the Houthi rebels um, took control of the capital a couple of years ago um, the, and displaced a, which was really a client government of Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia decided to have a bombing campaign and, and a war to drive the Houthis um, so the, the, out of power. Saudi Arabia had basically installed a puppet government in Yemen. Yes, and uh, the Houthis are who are the Houthis? Um, they are they are largely Shia in terms of their um, in terms of their religious faith, whereas the the government was Sunni. That's generally how it's Shiite. presented. Yeah, Shiite. Okay. Now that's generally how it's presented to the United States public, but. It, it's much more like Syria, which is a war over political power, mm. um, economic power, than it is um, sectarian. So something, uh, you know, they, something yeah. has to be done because there's a lot of people suffering and starving and dying. Yeah, because of this yeah. uh, civil war. Yeah, the civil war. And, and like Syria, you know, the United Nations has has been engaged and has brokered some talks and, and they're going on right now between the different factions um, as you know the same thing is is going on in Syria although Syria is different because Assad's army has been able to take control over the country so that's mm-hmm. a, a different scenario and of course you have um, the president of the United States talking about pulling out the 2,000 U.S. soldiers from Syria which I think is a is a real good thing and yeah, and you don't you don't you, I don't hear you saying that too often. President Trump Trump just did a good thing. Well, you know, if it happens, I yeah, mean, he, happens, his right. his own people are, are issue conflicting statements, which is sort of the norm. You know, he says one thing, his Secretary of State says another. That's just kind of what we're used to. And so, you know, we'll see if it happens. He's getting a lot of pushback from his party in in the Senate, and so he may not. <laughs> one doesn't know, but um, yeah. So, but the UN's role in Yemen has been uh, acceptable from a, from a humanitarian point of view. It's the, it's the Saudi role 
and the U.S. support of the Saudi regime. Yeah, the United has States has, has supplied uh, the the weapons and continues to right. supply the weapons. So we are directly implicated in in war crimes. You and, what, and I are, and, and so is our government. And what is the UN trying to do in in, in, in contradiction to that? Um, well, I mean, the Secretary General is, office has tried to broker talks between, um, you know, the Houthis and, you know, the exiled government and the different factions within the country. Um, I mean, the country's also split between the North and the South, which is another mm. issue where you have... It's not that big of a country either. Uh, no, it's not. And where you have more radical elements... Um, in the in the in the in the south of the country that have become stronger, you know, with all the the dysfunction and with the um, state of anarchy in parts of Yemen, which is of course what you had in in Syria too, you know, over, over time. So yeah, so I mean, both of these conflicts are going to have to play out, and and they will play out. It, it, it appears that Russia will take a much larger role in Syria. Which isn't surprising because, you know, you can understand Russia's role in Ukraine and Syria because of their need for warm weather, warm water, warm weather, <laughs> warm water ports um, in the West is, is, a, is a naval base that, that Russia has, um, the port of Tardis, and then, you know, same thing in, in Ukraine. Russia's not landlocked, but uh, most of their ports are, you know, you have serious icing. Well, so. I, w- I want to take a short break, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, sure. When we come back... Um, it's Martin Luther King Day. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an important uh, holiday, an important recognition of the uh, of the, the the importance of nonviolence. I want to talk about King's. Yeah, I mean, really radical legacy to. of nonviolence. How it mm-hmm. how it relates to the work that's going on here in this country, but also okay. maybe take a, a look at if it would have any relevance to the conflict in Yemen. So, folks, we'll uh, we're going to discontinue this uh, live stream. We'll take a short break. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sergeant's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music, and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, 
Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Bold Iowa was launched in 2016 to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline and continues to support the landowners who filed lawsuits against the abuse of eminent domain to build that pipeline. Bold Iowa's mission is to build rural-urban coalitions to fight climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, protect Iowa's soil, air, and water, and support non-industrial renewable energy systems. For more information, visit boldiowa.com, not .org.com. That's boldiowa.com. here. I want to thank the folks here at La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM for this uh, beautiful studio just east of the uh, the uh, state capital in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, thanks to uh, uh, Ashley Martinez uh, for helping to produce the show and thanks to Sherry Hardina for the post-production uh, stuff and also to Jeffrey Weiss for being my guest here this first part of the program. Later in the show, Mylon Engel is going to join us to talk about the uh, Climate, how climate change and animal agriculture intersect. But first, it's Martin Luther King Day, and uh, this is a very important day, uh, more important than a lot of the holidays, I think, that uh, tend to get more recognition. Valentine's Day, for example, <laughs> April Fool's Day. But uh, <laughs> here we are, Jeffrey, uh, uh, talking about nonviolence, about Yemen, about the, uh, the many different movements that are coalescing here to try to um, create greater democracy, greater public, mm-hmm. um, you know, a greater, a greater public buy-in to the American dream. But, um, you know, kick it off with your, yeah. um, you, I, know, I think you had a couple yeah. of quotes you wanted to read relevant to this Yeah, um, what good is sitting at a lunch counter if you can't afford a hamburger um, is from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the last few years of his life. Say um, it again? What good is sitting at a lunch counter if you can't afford a hamburger? Mm. Um, the evils of capitalism are as real as the evils of militarism and the evils of racism. Call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children. We must recognize we can't solve our problems now until there's a radical redistribution of economic and political power. This means a revolution of values and other things. We must see now the evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism are all tied together. You can't get rid of one without getting rid of the others. So the whole structures of American life must be changed. America is a hypocritical nation. And the title of Dr. King's last sermon was released by Bernice King. It was to be delivered on April 7th, 1968, and it was America is Going to Hell. So I throw that out to shock <laughs> This your, may be the only place where those quotes will be read Yeah, I throw that out to days. shock your listeners to, to say That's what I... That's my job to shock the well, listeners. Well, what I try to say to people is if you're interested in, in Dr. King, I, I did my thesis on the New York Times coverage of Dr. Martin King Jr. Malcolm X. Um, you really need to spend some time reading his sermons and his life from 1967 and 1968. The Poor People's Campaign was the summer of 1968. Hundreds of thousands of poor people of all races to shut down the levers of an oppressive government, in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to literally massive civil disobedience at the Pentagon, to stay there until, in his words, we cashed the check that we um, were to were to receive from our hundreds of years in this country as property, not as people. 
Um, and the, I, you know, the realization that Martin Luther King Jr. came to is that racism was not illogical. Racism was perfectly rational. It was an imperative of capitalism. Okay. And, and let me just explain I mean, it real not, quick. Not defensible, but... That's not morally not, defensible, yeah. but if you have a system of private ownership and the means of production for private profit and where employers want employees to work as much as possible for as little as possible, racism was something that would be inevitable because those people who are the owners of everything would want to and would need to to divide people. And race has – Malcolm X said a similar thing. And, and when King came to this realization, his – he he began to challenge the political and economic structures of this country. Okay. The the FBI uh, named King as one of the biggest threats to national okay, security. So, but, but, and this this is a part of of King's history. I know I'm being real strong on this because with a yeah. little bit of time. But I, all I'm doing is trying to say to people, um, you know, look at King's radical legacy and look at what he put forward and look at where things were at. And look at what they are, where they are at now, you know, and sort of ask yourself, you know, how far we have come. I'll also say, I don't think King would have wanted anything to do with a national holiday. I really, I, I feel ambivalent about, about this holiday all of the time because I, um, I have mixed feelings about it personally. Now, maybe that's because I, I feel like I'm too close to him because I, I read all his speeches. I, you know, when I wrote my thesis, I, I read every article the New York Times published about him, and I've I've seen how King has become like all leaders throughout U.S. US history, sort of de-radicalized. So has by has, media has the establishment of a holiday, and again, this happened a long time mm-hmm. ago, and way back then, of course, uh, people like Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley got got flack for not supporting sure. identifying yeah, many did this not, day yeah. as a holiday, but. Um, it's become a holiday. It's become sure. sanitized in some way. Yeah. And do you think that's been one way of taking some of the emphasis off the more radical elements of King's uh, agenda? It, you know, it, 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 if you look at the history of a lot of radical leaders in the United States, um, you know, Malcolm X came to a similar conclusion, by the way, as King in the, in the last few years of his life where he looked at, you know, political and economic sure, but structures. The, but, but there were, were uh, poles apart on violence. No, they were quite close together towards the end of Malcolm's life. I mean, Malcolm made a made a big shift. Yeah, yes, when he okay. went to when he went to Mecca and and, and when he came back um, from there. But um, yeah, I, I one time in a college paper I compared Malcolm to Patrick Henry. You know, give me liberty or give me death was sort of Malcolm's creed as as with Patrick Henry. But um, whatever the case, um, you know, media tends to sort of de-radicalize and, and reincorporate. Um, leaders that that pass away into sort of the you know baseball sure. or I say say football hot dogs and <laughs> apple pie and Chevrolet you know right, or right. whatever the commercial used to be when we were kids right. <laughs> you know well and, and, um, and it's it's worse than that of course because here we have uh, here we have um, Mike Pence Vice President Mike mm-hmm. Pence uh, yesterday I believe using using the memory of Martin Luther King Jr. as a rationalization for building Trump's wall across the border yeah, and receiving that's strong condemnation from one of yeah. King's kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, one, one of my all-time favorite King quotes is, um, nothing in the world, nothing in all of the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. And I, I tend to think that, you know, I sometimes refer to... Uh, uh, this civilization as a, as a wannabe empire in decline, and I, I tend to think that maybe if there's ever a tombstone for, 
Before Western civilization, King's quote, nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscious stupidity, well, um, could, could be on it. Yeah. But I think that's the country as a whole. Okay, it's so, not just Mike Pence. So, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I certainly don't disagree that, that, that King had a, a very deep radical side that tends yeah. to be whitewashed or ignored by history, or in the case of Mike Pence, uh, just, just totally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean t- totally. Uh, 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 yeah. What I want to say, appropriated for the wrong purpose. Yeah. But the, um, <clears throat> but the, uh, the, um, the, the, the core of King's life and mission and message was this, this, this other, this radical approach to social conflict. This, this, this non, this strategic nonviolent action. Yeah. That was very effective. No, absolutely. At accomplishing much in the civil rights struggle. And it has and been all over the that, world. And yeah. That's, that's still, oh, yeah. No, that's King, was, King was right. King said that nonviolence <clears throat> works. And Erica Chenoweth and a number of other researchers have shown that nonviolent movements work. And that, Paul and Mark Engler do a great job at absolutely. talking about King's uh, campaigns in their book, uh, This is an Uprising. Absolutely. So what is the message for, oh, wow. what is that message for our struggles here today? I think the, and in, and in Yemen, I, I, I think the message <laughs> is, you know, I think, um, is it Ocasio-Cortez delivered it <laughs> at the Women's March, I believe it was yesterday and or the day before. I, I, I can't remember, but um, I think she delivered it, that that the country has to move beyond identity politics and understand that the imperative that is spun, that is spun from our political and economic power um, in this country is, is one that has to be confronted, that, that you know, when we get some you know, national health insurance. Um, you know, you, you can't have racial equality if sure. you have economic inequality. And, and okay, so in his nonviolent action, a la King, the best way to confront those challenges. You know, it's 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 King would say it is it is the moral way. Um, it's not the only way. Historically, um, you know, the, the, in the United States, when the cities were burning down in the late '60s, you know, may have had something to do with Richard Nixon being in favor of a guaranteed national income or. The Congress, you know, during the Nixon years, passing federal national daycare, the House of Representatives and the Senate, and then Nixon vetoing it. Wow, what a time in history. We were this close, right, to to zero to five. And that was all based on the early childhood um, education. But it was also based on the fact that the cities were were burning. Um, You can see that with Nixon, how nonviolent protests work, because now that we have the tapes, there's comments he made from Kissinger as he looks outside of the White House and he can see protesters in barricades. That's a good question. Did did the the violent protests in Watts and other other cities involving... Involving um, arson and property destruction, probably. and and even did did those probably well, I would I, guess. I, 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 yeah. Let me finish my my sure. question. Yeah, did, did, <laughs> I think I know where you're going. Yeah, no. Did did they did did those favorably impact the movement, or did they actually set it back? Um, you know, a movement that was largely yeah. nonviolent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think we also have to understand that the 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 crux of the violence was. The, the authorities, you know, the authorities against nonviolent um, protesters, et cetera. Um, you know, King explained the riots as people who were were frustrated and had no other means um, to, to 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 lash out. And, and he understood. Um, he he spoke to the violence of the youth, and he said, you know, it, it's hypocritical for a, for a country that is, you know, firing napalm on innocent Vietnamese to to tell young people mm. in Chicago that they need to embrace nonviolence. I mean, that's King could see the contradiction of a country with a permanent war economy, a, a, a country in a state of perpetual war, preaching nonviolence 
to disaffected people. Um, you know, it's um, <laughs> you know, I think I think everybody when they when they look at it can see. I mean, you know, militarism is is so strong in, in our country. Um, you know, you can't really watch a football game anymore without you know the deification of militarism and and it's it's um you know and i think that is something that if king you know king would would really would, would really frown upon today that we haven't made more progress um in that but i mean nonviolence works it's worked yeah. all across well, the world one Look more at, quick question before South we Africa. before we yeah. uh, before we have to wrap up this segment and we could talk about this for sure. an hour or two and love to have you back soon to continue the conversation mm-hmm. in more specific context. But regarding Yemen, since we spoke about Yemen in the first part mm-hmm. of this program, uh, again, where we've seen a, a largely or almost an exclusively military conflict, mm-hmm. is there a role for, I mean, just as, just as nonviolent action became central to some of the uprisings in Egypt and Tunisia and other places in the Mideast uh, years, years ago, mm-hmm. is there a role for nonviolent action in Yemen today? Again, keep, keep that one short if you can. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I, 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 well, how do you say this? I mean, th- there was a point in the Syrian civil war um, where uh, all the sides, the weaponry became so big and so sophisticated that uh, nonviolence was probably no longer an option. I mean, keep mm-hmm. in mind in Syria, it started out as nonviolent, mm-hmm. and then the authorities use violence, and then. You know, it, it, there comes a time sometimes in a civil war where people have to pick their sides. So um, even massive nonviolence in, in, in Yemen right now, um, I'm trying to think of where it would be aimed. Um, it, it may be too late for that. But nevertheless, even Syria and even mm-hmm. Yemen, the majority of the population there are nonviolent and they're victims of the war mm-hmm. and they're refugees mm-hmm. and they're refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good news is, I, I would say, you know, Winning the War on War, a book by Joshua Goldstein, um, there are books that you can look at that suggest that with 200 nation states in the United Nations, we are at one of the most peaceful times in all of world history. Now, obviously, the news isn't going to report, you know, in yeah. 188 countries, there's no war taking place today. Right. <laughs> you yeah, know, right. now, right. you know, let's scare you so you'll buy our product. And, and that's you know, small that's, comfort to the people starving in, in Yemen. <laughs> y- right? Yes, and it is. But, Yemen, so. but, but you're, you're correct. But the yeah. big picture, um, I think King and others would, would see some progress in, 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 in a lot of areas. Right. Um, Hey, we've got to take a break, folks. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Fallon Forum today. We'll be back shortly. If you're listening on live stream, uh, we're going to stop the live stream because we're going to be taking a call from uh, Mylan Engel at the uh, Northern, uh, Northern Illinois University. We're going to talk about the confluence of climate change and animal agriculture. You can hear the show live on the Fallon Forum website or in central Iowa on Lorena 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon, your host here, as we broadcast live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We're at the studios of La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. A quick shout-out to some of our local business partners here in the uh, Des Moines metro. Uh, Gateway Market and Cafe, our anchor sponsor, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Thanks also to Community CPA and Associates with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It's tax season, folks. Give Ying Sa at Community CPA a shout. Also, thanks to Hawk Restaurant, located at East 5th and Walnut, 
Hawk. 90% of the food served there comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Sargent's Garage located at 6th and College. Sargent's uh, will give you a fair price and do a great job every time. Thanks also to Bold Iowa, building urban and rural alliances to fight climate change and related issues. And finally, thanks to Diversity Insurance located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. One-stop shopping for your insurance needs. No appointment needed. That's Diversity Insurance. All right, we're welcoming Mylon Engel to the program. He's a professor of philosophy at the uh, Northern, Uni- Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois. Hello, Mylon. Welcome to the show. Uh, hello, Ed. Uh, pleased to be here. Yeah, and I, I imagine you have as, as snowy weather as we do here today. Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> well, so um, you uh, a lot of your work focuses on ethics, and I know part of your work uh, focuses on ethics relating to animals. And um, I know one of the, uh, it's a big conversation that's only getting bigger uh, in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how people are feeling about diet and food and, and meat production, agriculture, generally speaking. What are your thoughts on the, um, on the uh, concerns that are being raised about animal agriculture? Well, there are a number of different kinds of concerns that are raised. Um, uh, Some concerns are about the environmental impact of animal agriculture. Other concerns are about the impact on the animals themselves. Um, But a lot of the uh, current concerns um, are concerns about uh, animal agriculture not being a sustainable form of agriculture. Um, If we we think about sustainability, that's really a moral notion. Uh, it's, it's nice to be talking about this on Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King was concerned with what we might call synchronic justice, treating people who exist now fairly. Mm-hmm. Sustainability is concerned with diachronic justice, justice across time, treating future humans fairly, right. so, leaving, yeah. preserving the opportunity to live well well into the future. And sustainability is quite a buzzword these days. Uh, we hear it talked about a lot. And um, we, you know, and, and even, I, I mean, I remember seeing commercials by Monsanto and other elements of, uh, of law, uh, Big Ag talking about how they are approaching sustainability. Is it like, like the word organic? Is it one of these words that are going to become increasingly meaningless as more and more people jump on board and kind of stretch the meaning of the word? Well, I mean, I can't predict that. I I can say I think most people use the word without really fully understanding or appreciating what it means. But scientists use another word called biocapacity, and that refers to the capacity of a biologically productive area uh, to generate an ongoing supply of renewable resources and absorb uh, absorb waste. Mm. And currently, collectively, humanity... Uh, is exceeding, is living at 150% of biocapacity. So we're exceeding our renewable resources by over 50%. So we're not even in the ballpark of living sustainably. Yeah, and some of that has to do, of course, with just the sheer volume of human beings on the planet. Well, um, certainly certainly human population is a big factor. Um, But... Inefficiencies in food production uh, play a huge role as well. So if you stop and think about it, there are 
seven billion human beings on the planet, uh, but we intentionally breed sixty billion farmed animals, all of whom have to be fed, rather than feeding humans directly on plant-based foods. So, if we cut out the the middle animal, so to speak, we would have more than enough resources to feed human beings tenfold. Because we wouldn't be feeding 60 billion other animals and only getting a 10% return on our nutrients, uh, which is what happens when you cycle. Now, there, uh, there, there's, a real, there's a real difference, though, of course, between uh, an animal raised in a large confinement or a feedlot uh, where you've got you know, thousands and thousands of creatures in one, one location and uh, more sustainable systems that are becoming more and more common, more and more... Um, they, they, they certainly aren't the dominant element of animal agriculture, but you're seeing a lot more people raising, a lot more farmers raising hogs in you know, pastured pork. Uh, um, you know, uh, backyard chickens are becoming more and more common. Uh, Free-range hens, uh, you know, grass-fed beef, those things are becoming more and more common. And how, how does, uh, do you make a distinction between that type of agri- animal agriculture and the large-scale confinement and feedlot operations? Well, each has its uh, downsides, so to speak. So, for example, uh, raising animals extensively is more humane to the animals. They can move about freely, but it requires far more land per animal than raising animals intensively, which is one of the reasons we started raising them intensively in the first place. So just to give you a comparison, I was talking about inefficiencies in animal agriculture. With the current um, largely dominant CAFO system, concentrated animal feed operation system, it takes three and a quarter acres of land to feed a meat eater for one year. And it only takes one sixth of an acre to feed a strict vegan uh, for an entire year. Now, the reason that's important is because, according to the World Bank, there are only three quarters of an acre per person currently living on the planet. So it's, it's simply unsustainable for everyone to adopt a meat-based diet. We don't have enough land. We would need four planets our size to feed every human being on the planet the way the typical American eats. So what, what about dairy, eggs? How do you, what are your thoughts on, again, you know, I mean, I, mean I, I raise chickens in my backyard. Uh, they don't. They don't take a lot of land, and in fact, they produce a, a, a product that is that is uh, essential for my vegetable crop. For your what? My vegetables. Uh, the manure that oh, I get for from your the, vegetable crop. The manure. The manure we get from chickens is critical to the compost we we create to help uh, replenish the soil where we grow vegetables. So there's a synchronicity here that I think enhances the sustainability sustainability of it. But you know. I, so I guess I'm trying to narrow it down to the issue of eggs specifically <laughs> this, for this this question is how, how do you feel about those? I mean those don't qualify for a vegan diet, but some some folks uh, do consider them okay for other you know, other types of diets. Well, uh, so l- let me back up because you first touched on dairy, and I want to say something about dairy. So uh, a dairy cow. A single dairy cow produces as much waste as 20 human beings. There are currently 10 million dairy cows in the U.S., so those 10 million dairy 
cows are producing as much waste in the form of manure as 200 million human beings, roughly two-thirds of the American population. That manure is the primary source of nitrous oxide, which is a, a greenhouse gas that has a global warming potential 296 times greater than that of CO2. Uh, manure is the principal source of um, nitrous oxide. And uh, in terms of local, you can have a local farm. Local just means, I mean, <laughs> marketers use things differently. Typically, people say within 100 miles. Stores like to say within a day's drive so they can label more things local and charge you more for them. But you, you take a dairy farm like Fair Oaks Dairy Farm in Indiana that has 30,000 dairy cows. Those 30,000 dairy cows in that one little area are producing as much waste as a city of 600,000 people. But because that dairy farm is only 75 miles from Chicago, all of that milk, all those dairy products from that farm can be sold as local. So local doesn't mean small and sustainably raised or, or any of those things. Okay, but Every da dairy cow is not only contributing enormously to the nitrous oxide emissions, but also because they're ruminants, um, they, have, they produce what's called enteric fermentation uh, in their gut as they're digesting food, which produces methane. And that methane gets released into the atmosphere through belching and flatulence. Methane is another greenhouse gas. It has a global warming right. potential 23 times greater than carbon dioxide. So d doesn't that depend on what the animal is eating? I mean, and, and again, if a, if a cow is eating grass, I, cows aren't designed to eat corn. There's, there's no doubt about that. But if a cow, if a cow is pasture-raised, uh, converting grass, which we can't eat, into protein, which we can't eat, uh, doesn't that both that, – that's a favorable transition, again, against something we can't eat, something we can't eat, uh, but also their, their diet, their lifestyle, presumably their emissions are a little bit less of an impact uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of contributing to climate change? Well, it certainly wouldn't impact the amount of manure they produce, so it wouldn't impact the, the nitrous oxide. Right, but that's, that's going into the soil. If they're, if they're out there in a pasture, that's going into the soil to, to regenerate the, uh, the, uh, the growth there. Well, again, I mean, but what you're talking about requires massive amounts of land that we don't currently have all to consume a product that we don't currently need to consume. But, but, who's, but that, that, that's an opinion, that we don't need to consume it. I mean, I, some would argue that the human digestive system is perfectly designed to, for an omnivore diet. Well, whether, whether we can consume it versus whether we need to consume it, uh, those are different questions. Um, but I can, I'll just point out that the... Uh, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is the professional organization for registered dietitians in this country, has a position paper on vegetarian diets. Um, and they say, and I'm just going to quote, appropriately planned vegetarian and vegan diets are healthful, are nutritionally adequate, and provide health benefits in the prevention and treatment of certain diseases. Right. They go on to say that these diets are appropriate for all stages of the life cycle, including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, adolescence, um, older adulthood, and for athletes. And then they stress that vegetarians and vegans are at reduced risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, certain types of cancer, and obesity. Because, because so that's the official position on plant-based diets from 
the professional organization for registered dietitians in this country. Right. But isn't there, I mean, you could argue that, that, I mean, you could say pretty much what you just said and substitute the word omnivore with the clarification that the diet was still largely plant-based, but that meat held some element, meat, cheese, dairy products held some element in that diet, and you could still, you know, you could still have a, a, you know, an extremely healthy uh, and productive and, you know, disease-free human. Uh, well, again, whether you can eat these things um, and remain healthy is different from whether you need to eat these things. Uh, I'm simply claiming there's no need whatsoever to eat any animal products. And I'll just mention one other uh, organization you might have heard of, Kaiser uh, Permanente. Um, it's one of the largest managed care organizations in the United States with over 17,000 physicians working under its uh, label. And in their journal, um, they are encouraging their physicians to recommend plant-based diets to all of their patients, all of their patients. <laughs> They're asking every one of their 17,000 doctors to recommend plant-based diets to all their patients, especially those with high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and obesity. They're doing that because they realize that's going to cut down the cost of their medical care. Mm. And, of course, Kaiser Permanente is in the business of making money. They want people to be healthy without having to spend lots of money on medical care. So uh, the evidence is pretty clear that a 100% whole food plant-based diet is, if not the most heart-healthy cancer-protective diet available, it's as heart-healthy and cancer-protective as any diet we can consume. Would you, do you, now, again, it, it's a whole food plant-based diet. It's not a junk food plant-based diet right. of highly processed stuff. Right. We're talking about uh, whole grains vegetables, fruits, and beans um, supplemented with small amounts of uh, raw uh, yeah. nuts, like walnuts and sure. almonds. And I, I, I have no argument with that at all. Just uh, the, the more you process foods, the, uh, the the less healthy they are. That's that's uh, that's as clear as day to me. But my, my, I guess my, my difference of opinion is that that uh, given our digestive system and giving, uh, given the Given the the history of our species, uh, and given the um, given the uh, the the need, I, I mean, any in my experience, whether I'm gardening or walking through an ecosystem in, out in the wild, any healthy system has both animals and plants. Yeah, again, my my the 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 thirty garden beds that I operate that my my, my partner and I raise every year, they wouldn't be anywhere near as good without that chicken manure, uh, firing up that compost we use. So even just from a purely, even if we aren't uh, eating those eggs or eating those chickens, what they produce is essential for our operation. And, um, and so, I, you know, I, 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 I think um, those are two different reasons to me that come to, to me come to the same point that, yeah, a diet based on natural, organic food is critical, but there is a role for dairy, eggs, and meat in that diet. That's my experience, and at age 60, I'm... I, I have none of those uh, problems that uh, plague much of America. Again, that's that's all anecdotal, <laughs> but uh, but I'd like to think that there's some some coming together here at some and maybe there is. I know there I know there are, I have plenty of great friends who are vegan or vegetarian, and 
you know, we just don't we just don't have any common ground on the issue of even a minimal amount of meat in the diet. And uh, but I I I I continue to defend that as an option. Well, so um, you keep saying that you get something from chickens that's valuable to your gardening, um, but there is I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a veganic agriculture movement both in Europe and in this country. Veganic? Um, what you're basically using the, the chicken feed for is to, uh, the chicken manure for is to return nitrogen yes. uh, to the soil. But that can be done with cover crops, rotating cover crops that uh, take nitrogen out of the air, put it into the soil, tilling those crops back into the soil. It requires a rotation, uh, a crop rotation system but you can uh, you can grow all you can get all of the nitrogen back into the soil that you need using without any animal uh, fertilizer whatsoever. Um, we mostly use animal fertilizer because it's available. Here's another statistic that you might not be aware of: livestock in this country produce 250,000 pounds of excrement per second. 250,000 pounds per second. So we have to find something to do with it. So we spray it on the fields and claim that it's essential to agriculture um, when a proper system of crop rotations um, could easily uh, get the nitrogen back into the soil uh, for the crops uh, to to, to grow. So again, there's there's no need uh, for these things. Um, As as far as uh, to come back to eggs, if you've got six chickens running around in your backyard and they're laying eggs and you're collecting those eggs and consuming those eggs, um, that's got a minimal impact on the environment compared to uh, in the, uh, commercially produced eggs. Um, th- th- there's no question about that. Um, but if you're, Mylon, if you're I, buying I've got to wrap up chickens some... okay, from t- a hatchery... Um, then you're contributing to all of the problems that go on in that hatchery, uh, such as the 200 million male chicks of the of the layer strain who are ground up alive because they don't produce eggs. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, and again, I, 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 and I think there's a level in between that, too, where you've got small producers, uh, you know, a, a dairy farm of, of 50 cows, for example, that are, you know, grazing. And again, I, we probably won't ever agree on this, but... but um, uh, I, I, I think I, I just I think it's important to make that distinction. There are more and more of us who have great concerns about corporate-dominated, big, you know, confinement-based agriculture. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm from my little six or twelve flock backyard chicken, you know, coop. But there's a, there's stuff in the middle there too that I I feel okay about. I I I find it's been a healthy contributor to my diet. And yeah. Um, uh, you know, and I don't know. I, I I think I don't mind that the that a big chunk of the world, or our world at any rate, is is is, is switching to vegan uh, or vegetarian. It makes it harder to have dinner parties, but uh, <laughs> I think it's um, I, you know, I, I think it's okay. What I don't want to see is this attitude of people saying you can't, you can no longer, eat, thou shalt no longer eat meat, thou shalt no longer eat eggs or cheese. Uh, I hope I hope we can get to a point where there's some acceptance of that option for people, that, that we can all well, live in peace. Historically, you would acknowledge that there have been cultural practices that you think it's a good thing that we banned. 
Oh, yeah, slavery, sure. Oh, sure, yeah. Slavery, yeah. witch burning, um, genocide of Native peoples. Right, but I don't. It's put, a very good thing that we ended those cultural traditions, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but I don't put I don't put uh, being an omnivore in that same category. Well, I mean, but of course, uh, you're suggesting that eating animal products is just a personal choice. Vegans, they have their personal choice; they don't have to. Meat eaters, that's just a personal choice. But when a choice harms others, it's not just a personal choice. It's an other-regarding choice. I'm going to let you have And our choices to eat animals harm those animals. Mylon, I'm going to let you have Even the, if you uh, raise uh, them, Mylon, you gonna, know, uh, more humanely, I'm going to have they're, to, they're killed in inhumane ways at Mylon, a fraction of their natural life. Mylon, I've got to go. I've got, I'm running out of time here. I've got a hard break coming. I really appreciate you calling. I'm sorry we ran out of time because I'd love to talk more. Um, we're folks, we've been talking with Mylon Engel, professor of philosophy from the uh, Northern, Northern Illinois University. Mylon, thanks for joining us. Uh, well, thanks for having me, Ed. Okay. Folks, um, thank you for joining us. And thanks to some of our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe at 20th and Woodland, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Thanks also to uh, Community CPA and Associates. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant. Uh, thanks to all the local businesses that make this program possible. And again, thanks to my staff here, uh, Sherry Hardina, to Ashley Martinez, and to the folks at, uh, here at Lorena, the uh, studio at 1260 AM, 96.5 FM in Des Moines. This is Ed Fallon saying thanks for joining today's conversation on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Sid's Catering is owned by Sid Cohn, whose culinary career spans an eclectic variety of cities, kitchens, dishes, and awards. Sid got her first taste of the food and hospitality industry as a youngster growing up in scenic northeast Iowa, where her family operated a vacation home that catered to an international clientele. Every one of Sid's catering arrangements is custom-made, and much of the food she uses comes from local sources with vegan, vegetarian, and gluten-free options. Sid will provide whatever you need. That's Catering by Sid, spelled C-Y-D. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515 288 
515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. You know, there are two primary reasons why Iowa makes the national political news from time to time. And the main one is, of course, the Iowa caucuses. Every four years we get to uh, host this uh, stampede of presidential candidates, and this year is shaping up to be no exception. The other reason we often make uh, political news nationally is Congressman Steve King. And um, Everybody in the country knows about King nowadays. Uh, he just continue, he's continued to say the most uh, crazy stuff, uh, including most recently uh, saying that, you know, asking the question, what's the problem with white nationalism, white racism, white supremacy? And uh, that, of course, has gotten him into big trouble. So, you know, after more than a decade of King embarrassing Iowa, <laughs> uh Finally, Republican elected officials here and across the country are taking him to task. And he was, of course, um, condemned by a House resolution, which everybody, including Steve King, voted for, except one Democrat in Illinois who felt the resolution didn't go far enough in punishing King. He's also been stripped of his committees. um, And this is a big deal because when you don't have committees, you don't have a lot of other other things to do. So folks in the 4th District right now are thinking, hmm, we really don't have a congressman right now. (laughs) So um, we'll see what happens next, of course. Um, You know, know, here's what I'm curious about. The U.S. House, of course, led that challenge against King, and they're controlled by Democrats now, Nancy Pelosi at the helm. In Iowa, both the House and Senate are controlled by Republicans. Now, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and Senators, U.S. Senators Grassley and Ernst have all been critical of Steve King. Even Party Chair Jeff Kaufman has been critical of Steve King. Uh, again, you have to wonder why it took them so long. But they're there, and that's great. I am wondering if the Iowa House and Senate might also weigh in on this with their own state-level resolution condemning Steve King for his uh, racism, his, his fondness for white supremacy. We'll see. They may not. <clears throat> it would send a strong message. I think if they did, that would that would be uh, that, that would that would be a shot heard around the nation. The um, the uh, I mean, what Republicans are doing, of course, is uh, challenging King in the primary. They've got a pretty strong uh, opponent stepping forward. Uh, politically, he's not that different than King on issues. Uh, he's just probably not going to be uh, openly saying crazy stuff that uh, that gets him in trouble all the time. Uh, if he wins. Now, there's a, there's a third candidate running, so um, <laughs> and there may even be a fourth one. I, it's hard to say, but of course, if enough people jump into the Republican primary, that could divide the anti-King vote, and King could win. Now, people forget that King had a primary opponent not too many years ago, uh, Senator Bertrand from Sioux City, who, you know, fairly well known in the district, and um, fairly long, you know, years of service, he got creamed by King. Now, maybe things have changed enough where King will not be able to maintain his seat in a competitive primary. I don't know. But um, I think one thing that is really clear 
is that J.D. Scholten, the Democrat that ran against King and lost, again, Scholten got 47% to King getting just over 50% of the vote. King has never experienced that kind of a challenge. And so it may be that Scholten softened him up enough, or maybe Republicans realize that, hey, this guy is vulnerable, despite living in a very, very Republican district. He's vulnerable, and maybe it's time that we ran somebody against him and took it seriously and tried to get a new person in there. You know, not only politically, but I think there's a sense that Republicans know that they've got a shrinking universe of voters to choose from if their rhetoric, or rhetoric is primarily uh, anti everything that minorities care about. <laughs> you know, you can't you you can't really sustain a base if it's just um, angry white men. You know that that that's only going to get you so far in in the uh, 21st century. We'll see where that goes. Others are asking the question, of course, if King is um, now uh, being challenged by his own party, why not Trump? Because Trump has basically said a lot of the same things King has, but maybe not quite so um, quite so uh, stridently. Uh, in some cases, maybe more stridently. So that question is being asked. Why, why not have the same, uh, why not use the same barometer to measure and criticize President Trump, who interestingly is one of the few leading Republicans who has not come out and criticized uh, Steve King. That is interesting. And again, may come back to, uh, to uh, hurt Trump in the long run. I don't know. Who knows these things? Uh, politics has become the most unpredictable science uh, out there, more unpredictable than the weather. So speaking of the weather, in the new climate era, we have uh, seen some pretty uh, amazing stuff um, across the country in 2018. And 2019 um, started off very, very mild. Just two weeks ago, I could drive a spade into the ground, no frost. So um, the fact that climate change is becoming a, a higher and higher priority for more and more people and more and more businesses and more and more politicians brings into focus concerns about the Dakota Access Pipeline. And again, a news story almost exclusively ignored by the uh, mainstream press until I brought it to their attention, uh, and um, certainly ignored by the national press even now, is that uh, two residents of Boone County, two folks who own land in Boone County, the uh, Dick and Judy Lamb, they, um, they were never happy when Dakota Access came through and said, we want your land for a pipeline. They fought them every step of the way. And, uh, they, you know, they, they, they were involved with various lawsuits. But the, the one that was uh, front and center of interest last week was the lawsuit um, alleging that Dakota Access did not adequately compensate them for the full loss of their property. They live just a little ways from Ames. And Ames is a fairly vibrant town. And there was, you know, there was the, the recognition that because they live close to Ames, there is development potential in their property. And they felt that Dakota Access needed to compensate them not just for the agricultural value of the property, but for other potential value as well. Because once you put a pipeline through there, there's not much else you can do. You can plant corn over it and and enjoy the declined yields because of the influence of the pipeline. But you certainly can't build a home on it or a business or anything else that requires going any depth at all. So they sued. Uh, they had asked for 900000 in lost potential development value of that property. They settled for 250000 which was 
a win because uh, you know these the 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 lawyers for the Dakota Access Pipeline. Some of these folks travel around the country dealing with this kind of lawsuit. They're really good at it. They know what they're doing, uh, and they present very compelling arguments. And yet, a jury that met for seven days, the whole the trial was seven days. That's a long trial. It started on a Tuesday, ended on the following Wednesday. The jury deliberated a long time and in the end came down on the side of the landowners. And Dick and Judy Lamb were, were awarded the 250000 Now, of course, out of that comes the 90000 they already received in compensation from DAPL. And out of that comes all the legal and other expenses. So, yeah, they get some monetary uh, gain from the suit, but it's, you know, it's, it's small compared to uh, what they've spent in terms of time and money. Uh, but it is a moral victory of great significance and a, 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 um, a strategic victory because there are other lawsuits out there. In Iowa, there are lawsuits, uh, there, there are lawsuits dealing with soil compaction where the uh, company is alleged to have come in and ruined the soil mix. They, they, they were supposed to separate topsoil from subsoil, didn't do it. There are lawsuits based on soil compaction where they, 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 they misused the equipment on the land and created compaction that is now causing uh, water to stand um, and it's you know, causing problems for crop productivity. There's also concerns relevant to, um, to soil loss, to crop yields, uh, crop yields declining. So there's a whole bunch of these smaller lawsuits that we will see how they pan out. But the fact that the Lambs won their lawsuit, it's interesting and instructive and strategically valuable. We'll see where it goes. Um, again, all eyes are really on the Iowa Supreme Court, who back on September 12th heard a case involving nine landowners, including the Lambs and the uh, Iowa Sierra Club, a case that alleges that the Iowa Utilities Board wrongly allowed, allowed DAPL to use eminent domain to gain access to landowners' properties. Again, it's a strong case because the, 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 the law indicates that, that uh, eminent domain cannot be used for a private purpose. And, of course, the way around this was for the pipeline company to describe themselves as a public utility. That's becoming increasingly uh, questionable since most of the oil running through Iowa, and again, none of it's being used here directly. Uh, the pipeline company argued that, well, you know, some of it's going to come back to you in the form of gasoline for your, for your cars, your, your tractors and whatnot, your combines. But I think it's increasingly evident that most of that oil is destined to export. And so, yeah, we'll see where that goes. Again, lots of interesting stuff happening, folks. Thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you and reminding you the show airs live every Monday at 11 o'clock Central Time on Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM and on the Fallon Forum website.